How many men know, I like to talk to the men for a moment, that if mama's not happy, ain't nobody happy. So, Sherry's like, that, that bandstand thing's got to go, Kevin. It just, just isn't going to work. <laughs> Any guys ever had your wardrobe changed when you got married? Did you ever have that happen? Anyone here? No? No? A couple of you? <laughs> My wife's like, you're wearing that? You're going to go out in that? You ever heard that one? You, come on, come on, I got one. I was always like, you got two. I was like, no, Sherry, I'm going to change in the car. Or I was thinking as we passed through the garage, I was going to change. Yeah, I was going to wear this. She's like, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like going with that. I don't, I, don't, I don't like what you got going on. I don't like those shoes with that pant and that thing going on. So I have to get prior approval in my, in my clothes. So, <laughs> But that's what we do. So Sherry's with my daughter today, and she's with my grandson. So she wanted me to let you all know that she loves you. And um, she's out and about doing her thing spending time with the grandbaby. So we're doing a series on, which is good. It's really good, right? Grandbabies. He's, he's special. Aren't they all? So um, we're talking about discipleship. And do you guys know Jesus is a king? Yes. He's king. And so as a king, king of kings, exactly. As a king, he has a right to give decrees, doesn't he? As a king, he has a right to give mandates. Mandates are what he wants. And so the mandate that's over the church is to make disciples. It's a mandate. Universally placed over the lives of the, over the church and over the lives of the Christians. We're called to follow him under discipleship. And the church itself is to make disciples. The Hebrew word is Talmudim, followers of the word or followers of his ways. And so the idea here is that Jesus never told us to make converts. Conversion's important, okay? It's not the gospel of salvation, it's the gospel of the kingdom. That's the difference. And so we, we bring people to Christ, but we never disciple them. We tend to lead them where they are. That is, in essence, giving birth to a child and leaving them on the doorway. And so God tells us to make disciples. He tells us to make followers of the way. He tells us to make people that will understand his ways and follow them. Salvation is part of that because that's what God wants. He wants us to become born again. He wants us to come to him. He wants the relationship restored. But then after that, we're called to follow him. Can I get a witness? Anybody? Exactly. We're called to be like Jesus. So we're doing, uh, we've been talking about uh, the lostness of man, being born again, and then uh, being set apart. And this week we're going to talk about justification. Now hopefully I can get to my point on justification, because I didn't make it for a service. I didn't even get to justification, and the whole point of this message is justification. So pray for me. (laughs) Stretch your hands towards the pastor. Lord, may he accomplish what you set him forth to do. Romans says this, We're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to talk about a lot of misnomers, a lot of stupid stuff that the church teaches. Foreknowledge. God, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters before our Father. And whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And who he justified, he glorified. This is the process that God is undertaking in your life. Aren't you glad? Jesus doesn't give up on you. Right? 
Some of you heard Andrew was here a few weeks ago, Andrew Aronzeller. And I was listening to the, to the recording, and he just was free worshiping, and he was just singing, like, telling the Lord, he's like, you never get tired, you never give up on us, you're never weary. He's not tired. He doesn't give up on you. You give up on you before he gives up on you. He doesn't give up on you. Ever. Foreknowledge. What does this idea of foreknowledge mean? God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. The Bible tells us in Isaiah that Jesus, he, God says, I am the Lord, there's none like me. I could, we could get a witness off that. Absolutely. Declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. What does this mean? Foreknowledge. God knows... He, know who, he knows who you are. He knows when you would be born. He knows the time and the space in which you will be born in. But the bigger concept of foreknowledge is God knows what he wants to do. This is foreknowledge. It's like a builder building a house. He knows he wants to build the house. Anybody here in the construction business? Well, let's just take any business for that matter. You know what you want to do. But how you get there, that, that's determined by a lot of other factors. So foreknowledge of God, God knows he wants to do this. But how he gets there is determined through choices, interactions, covenants, agreements that his people make along the way. It's basically like a builder building a house. You have a timeline. We're going to build this house. Anybody here done remodeling on their house? Anybody? Right? Have they hit the timeline? Have you ever had a contractor hit the timeline? Most of the time they don't. Because they say it's six months and it turns into eight months and it turns into, where's Mina? Mina can testify of that, right? It turns into a year. And a lot of times it's not just the, it's not the contractor's fault. It's determined, it's mitigated by factors such as the subcontractors. Yeah? You can't always count on the performance of other people to do their job. God, everything God is doing, he's doing in partnership. But he is going to build the building. He is going to accomplish his end. He is determined to do that. So his foreknowledge is he knows. He not only he knows you, he knows when you will be born. He knows the consequences of the choices that you will make. He knows. He knows. He's well aware of it. It's like an artist painting a landscape. This is another analogy. So the artist comes to paint a landscape. He has the canvas in front of him, and he says, I'm going to paint a landscape. And now this artist is in partnership. So what we get to do, God says, I'm going to make a portrait of your life. I'm going to make a portrait of you. Now, you get to determine if this portrait is going to be a finger painting, right? If it's going to be realism. You get to determine if it's going to be surrealism. You get to determine if it's going to be an impressionist painting. But nonetheless, the Lord is painting a portrait. Your life will be painted as a portrait. He has foreknowledge of what he wants to do. He's going to make a portrait out of your life. But your partnership determines what it looks like. That's the way it is. And so we understand foreknowledge and the idea of the God's partnership. Everything, if you have to understand a basic foundational principle about the Lord, always. Everything is in partnership. Everything. Everything. He partners with you. He doesn't do it for you. He does it with you. So here's the logic. You say with me, I can't do it without him. And he won't do it for me. But he will do it with me. That's right. You say, I'm incapable of working with the Lord. You don't think he knows that? Of course he knows that. He knows you can't do anything. It's kind of like, you know, a little, little infant child that's going to come out and help his dad fix the car. You ever see anybody with little kids, right? Little kid comes out, dad's working on something. The little boy comes up with a, with a wrench. He thinks he's going to do something. He's not really doing anything. But his dad takes pleasure in the partnership. This is kind of how it works. But God does everything with us. It's a partnership. 
So in his foreknowledge, he knows what he wants to do. His counsel will stand. He will build his church. He will make a portrait of your life. He will. What that portrait looks like, well, what are you giving him? Are you giving him acrylics? Are you giving him watercolors? Are you giving him finger paint? I mean, what are you offering him? You giving him chalk? Are you giving him pencil? Are you giving him a rock so he can scratch it? I mean, what are you offering him? He's going to work with the materials you offer, but he will make a portrait of you. It's going to happen. He's predetermined it. It's his foreknowledge. He knows what he wants to do. So Romans 8, which is a very complex chapter in the Bible, three of the most theologians, if you want theology, which is theology's big word that means study of God, all Christians should have a basic understanding of theology. Our theology, most of our theology is rooted in the 1600s, when, or, when, or the time of Martin Luther and the time of um, uh, John Calvin. So the church draws most of its theology from centuries old Nonsense, And most of it's dogma. Say this. Doctrine is what the Bible teaches. Dogma is man's opinion. There's a massive difference between dogma and doctrine. And the church passes off a lot of dogma as doctrine. How do you know? Well, when that dogma is directly challenged, it falls apart. They say it's a doctrine. And then you challenge it with scripture and it, dis- and it falls apart. Well, guess what? That's not a doctrine. That's a dogma. If it's a doctrine, it's going to stand. And it will stand and it will be proved. Will- not only will it stand, it will be proved out. There's a, doctrine, there's a doctrine taught in the church called, a cessation, called cessationism. It's not sensational at all. It's, but it's cessationism. They believe the power of God has failed. They believe there is no power. There is no miracles. There is no nothing. It doesn't exist. But when you confront them with the scriptures, those who hold this view and teach this doctrine, and you show them the scriptures, it falls apart. It's disproven. They hold the, 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 whole, the whole concept of cessationism is founded on one verse. And the rest of it is founded on theory. One verse. But you come to them with 30 verses that support the position of, uh, of, of continuation, which is the power of God continuing into generation after generation after generation, miracle, power, all that. And not only, does, not only is cessationism taught as a doctrine, 70% of all American churches believe cessationism. Seven out of ten churches believe the power of God is not for today, in one form or another. That's insanely sad. Seven out of ten. That's a statistic. And so when you can, but you can easily decimate that. You take that, but most Christians just go, well, it's what the pastor said. It's what the, the it's what doctors, pastor so-and-so said. I, I mean, they don't like me. I don't like pastors a lot of times. That's why Sherry's like, hey, you can't play nice. I'm not trying to not play nice. I, I just told first service, I don't preach Christendom. I preach the kingdom. I am not interested in religious traditions and denominational viewpoints and opinions and long-standing traditions. I have no interest in that. Look around the room. There's nothing traditional about this room at all. But what it is, is it's welcoming. Why? Because Jesus said, come to me. Come to me. And so we want to create an atmosphere where people can come to him. It's not rooted in tradition and not rooted in, I mean, I'm all in. I'm all, you know, let's, hey, let's improve the place. I'm all for it, you know? But that's not the end of the end. The end game isn't, well, we have, we have pews, Pastor, because you see our, our ministry was founded, our denomination was founded in 1742, and 
We were here before the American Revolution, and ever since then, we've always had wooden pine pews. So every church in our denomination must have wooden pine pews. We have a steeple because that's just the way things are done. We have a steeple. It's a tradition. they, They hold on to traditions, not only traditional aesthetics, but traditional viewpoints. Jesus said, by your traditions, you make the what? Word of God of no effect. Word of God has no power because you're so deeply rooted in your stupidity. You're so deep. Yeah, that's what I said. You're so deeply rooted. Paul told told the Galatian church, he called them foolish. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know what that means? That word bewitched is to twist. Paul's asking them, who has twisted what you've been taught? Having begun in the spirit, you now believe you can do it in the flesh. That's what was twisted. The Christianity is encountered by the Spirit, we're empowered by the Spirit, we're to live it out from the Spirit. But somehow, along the way, we've lost the Holy Spirit and a reliance upon Him, and we've given ourselves over to traditions, spiritual disciplines, you know, and all of these external management systems that produce nothing. They create bondage and legalisms. We just went to lunch with uh, Alejandro. Did you guys like Alejandro? Yeah? Okay. All right. Yes. Good. So that was nice. We went to lunch with them. And Sherry and I, you know, it's like, like, it's all on the table. So it's like, there's nothing, there's no secret. We don't, you know, we don't, we're not, we're not a pastoral couple that enshrines ourselves in glass and presents ourselves like a museum piece for all to see. We're real people living out the gospel in a real way. And so we're just talking in front of them and, and his wife's like, you know, I know Alejandro pretty good, but I don't know. His, I've only met his wife a couple of times and she's super sweet. She's like, wow, you guys are just so real. She's like, it's just, and I said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, love us or hate us. This is the way it is. Um, but we're, we're, you know, it, it's okay. And she said, we get with pastors. And she said, their, their philosophy is, is that they show no cracks. They don't let any weakness be shown through their life because they feel like it's a false representation to the people. I'm like, who told you that? The Bible says we have this treasure in earth and vessels that the glory may be from God and from, not from us. That word earth and vessels is cracked pots. We have the treasure in the light of the gospel of the kingdom in cracked pots. You always knew you were a cracked pot. Well, the Bible just confirms that to you. What happens when you put light in a cracked pot? Anybody? What happens? Where does it shine through? Through the cracks. The light shines through the cracks. That the glory may be from God and not from us. The light shines through the cracks. Like God uses you, yep. Cracks and all. Yeah, sure does. We, we, we create environments in where there cannot be no trust, there can be no honesty. And so Romans, Romans chapter 8, I'm just going to paraphrase most of it to get to this point. But before Paul gets to this verse I just quoted, he's basically saying, The Lord knows your weaknesses. As if, right? He knows your weakness. And Jesus say this with me, Jesus knows my weaknesses. He knows my frailties. He knows my insecurities. He knows my doubts. He knows my fears. And he loves me just the same. That's right. He loves you just the same. What are you hiding for? <laughs> he knows it anyway, man. He knows your weaknesses. Okay, This is what Romans is telling us. Paul's getting to this idea of foreknowledge and predestination. And in chapter 8, he's setting the table by making these statements. He's saying, God knows you. And he's saying, he knows your weaknesses. He says, he knows the pathways of your choices. How many know life is a series of choices? It's true. 
Say this with me. My todays determine my tomorrows. The choices you make today determine where you will be tomorrow. It's just that simple. And life is a series of choices. You cannot choose to not decide. You're confronted with choices. To say I'm not making a decision is to make a decision. God knows your choices. He knows the consequences of your choices. This is what Paul's saying in Romans 8. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your choices. And it says he's praying for you. Holy Spirit's praying for you. you know, what do you think he's praying for? That you'd make the right choice. <laughs> he knows you. He knows you're weak. He knows the consequences of your choices. And the Spirit is interceding for us. Interceding. Let Kevin make the right choice. And then he goes on to say, but God will work out all things to the good of those who love him and are what? Called according to his purpose. There again is the foreknowledge. He knows what he wants to do with you. Okay? He's going to work everything out. So you make a decision. Instead of going towards the mark, you make a decision that swings you wide. And so the Lord's like, okay, all right. He's not freaked out. He just knows that's going to cost you time. Can I get a witness? That's going to cost you pain. You're going to suffer emotionally for that decision. That's going to cost you resources. Sometimes our stupid decisions cost us time, emotional pain, and resources. But that doesn't disqualify you. It hurts you. So you lost, you just lost two years. You just caused yourself tremendous heartache and you probably almost went bankrupt from that stupid decision that you made. Just a question. But the Lord says, I'll work it out to your good and I'll move you back towards your purpose. That's what he's saying because he foreknows what he wants to do with you. So God is doing all of this. He's saying, I know you. I love you. I know your weaknesses. I'm praying for you, Kevin. I'm praying for you. This is why it's important when you partner with the Holy Spirit. Like, you're going to come in line with that intercession. Because he's already praying for you. He's already interceding with you. And you start asking the Lord, where do I go? What decision do I make? He's going to tell you. He's going to give you some semblance of guidance. And if he's neutral on it, then he's just basically telling you, what it would, there's no wrong choice here. But we have to learn to discern the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is everything. Everything, Christian. He is everything. The scripture is the language of the Spirit. But the Spirit is the government of heaven. He is the rulership of heaven. The Spirit gives life, but the letter kills. You cannot live by the Word alone. Somehow, again, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, we think we can live only by Scripture and doctrine. I'm all in on Scripture and doctrine. I can give you 50 verses on a Sunday if you want them. I love the Word of God. I'm all in on the Word of God. But in my experience, haha, I have learned... That no much how much scripture I have put in myself and how much determination I have made towards those things, I cannot sustain it and I cannot complete it. No matter how much I know. And I, foolish Galatian, believed that I could do it without the Holy Spirit. Huh. It was what I was taught. So I will not teach you such things. I come from school, I come from churches, they're charismatic. And they believed in the gifts of the Spirit, but saw none. They believed in the power of the Spirit, but never operated in it. Never leaned into it. Never demonstrated anything. But yet they nodded in agreement that it was present. That the power of the Spirit was present. But nothing ever happened. No one got healed. Almost no manifestation. Prophetic, forget prophetic, wasn't even relevant. We don't want to hear voices. I still got clowns that tell me that. Don't want to hear voices. You need to be careful. Don't let anybody hear voices. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your maidservants, your manservants, those who are far off and those who are near. You know what that means? Everybody. 
That is a universal qualification that all will and can prophesy. You will hear his voice and you can speak it forth. So I don't know what I'm doing. That's where coaching comes in. That's where teaching comes in. That's where development comes in. We teach things like that. Holy Spirit is everything. Say this. Choices. <laughs> We're all going to love this one. Because you're going to go, that's so true. Okay, so choices can be good, bad, good, better, and best. So when we're looking at choices, there can be good, better, and best. Great. Then we have this one. This is what, There can be bad. Ready? Come on. Bad, worse, and disaster. <laughs> A lot of times we can't see the end result of those things, but God in His foreknowledge knows where that decision is going. This again comes back to this. This plays out in our faith all the time. We ask God for something and He says no. He says, no, we don't like no, do we? Suck our thumb, pout in the corner, you don't love me. If you love me, you would give me that because he foreknows where that decision is going to take you. He foreknows where that relationship is going to take you. God is working things for your good and he's telling you no in that instance. How many knows you can, go, you can do what Jesus tells you not to do? Anybody? Yeah. Anybody ever did what Jesus told you not to do? The Lord said, don't do that. Lord said, don't do that. You go, yeah, I think, I think I know a little more than you, Lord. You just, you leave that to me, okay? You stay over there and you just, this is my forte. You leave that to me. Okay. <laughs> and then boom, you get hit and you go, wow, I didn't see that coming. And the Lord's like, I did, but you didn't listen to me. He foreknows. This is why it's a partnership with the Spirit. Sometimes God, this is, that, this plays, this is a broad conversation on this one, because sometimes God elect, a, a deliberately allows you to go into stressful circumstances. He does it on purpose. Jesus wouldn't do that. It's in your Bible, man. He sent him into a storm. You see it all the time. You go, don't. Jesus would never send his people ahead of him. Really? Read your Bible. Jesus sent his disciples ahead of him. It's in the Word. He would never do that. Uh, Jesus would never send us into a storm. It would, if God has told us to do something, it's going to be easy. Who told you that? He sent them into the storm. And they rode all night. And the Bible says the wind was contrary. Which means they weren't going anywhere. The power that was against them was greater than the power that they could exert. And the Lord showed up on the water, calmed the storm, shifted the situation. What's the, why would God do that? Because he's trying to show you you're very self-reliant. He will allow you and he will put you in positions that demonstrate and manifest or show forth your self-reliance. Some of you have an idolatry of your intellect. You think you've got, you think you can figure everything out. Some of you, you're not, you're, you're idol worshipers of your competence. You think you can, you're highly competent. That's a gift. But that gift means nothing unless it's partnered with the Lord. Competence, God's all in on competence. He doesn't want incompetence. He wants us to be competent. But he doesn't want us to be, in, to be competent and self-reliant. He wants us to be competent and spirit-reliant. Big difference. But what happens is, is our competence sometimes leads to this ego, and we become, we become uh, uh, you know, arrogant. Because our competence is very high. And we feel like we don't need the Lord. I got this. I got this. Happens all the time. You need him every minute of every hour of every day. You need him in him we live, move, and have our being, man. You know why I quote these verses? Because they've been beat into me. Beat into me. True. Apart from me, I can, you can do nothing. That's what John says. That's my life verse. John 15. Apart from me, you can't do anything. 
But in you, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? You see the contrast? That's right. In him, you can do anything. With me, without me. He knows the key. So he has foreknowledge. He knows what he wants to do. He knows where this thing is going. He knows what he wants to accomplish with your life. And I'm going to tell you something. When it comes to what God wants to do with your life, he's a jealous God. He's not going to let you do what you want if it's in conflict with what he wants. He'll let you exhaust yourself doing it your way. He'll let you run to the ground to where you have nothing left. And he'll go, you need me now? No, I don't need you yet, Lord. You want to do your thing now, Kevin? No. You want to do my thing now instead of your thing? No, no, no. No, I want to keep doing my thing. I want to keep doing my thing. I want to keep doing my thing. Happens all the time. All the time. Until you're utterly exhausted and without any strength. And then, you, then, then only then, most of the time, people go, okay, I'll do it your way. I'll do it your way. And I think people are well-meaning. I think most people don't. It's either ego or it's ignorance. It's one or the other. A lot of people are just ignorant. They don't know that God has something for them. They don't know that God will take them there. So they're, we're trained in this world to be very self-reliant. I felt like God told me a while back ago, you're fighting with one hand. You're, you're, you, I, I had a dream. God speaks in dreams. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. Your young men will dream dreams. Your old men will see visions. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Okay? So dreams and visions are part of this thing too. Okay? And I had, a, I had a dream and the Lord showed me that um, my right hand was tied behind my back. And I was doing all these things. And the Lord goes, you're not giving me your best. You hold your strength for other things. And it wasn't because I didn't want to give him what that I was using. It's because I didn't know how to give that to him. I didn't know how. Okay. So I was using my abilities with, and I'm still working on it. So pray for me. Right. Stretch your hands towards the pastor again. One more time. Man, this guy needs it. No, I'm just, I appreciate it. Yes. Pray for me. I need all the prayers I can get. But I I had a lot. I I, I was very, very self-reliant. I was very competent in business, very capable, and I could do things in my own strength very, very easily. But I didn't know how to use that strength into the kingdom. I couldn't see the partnership with that. I couldn't see it. And so the reason that I was doing that wasn't because I was arrogant. It was because I was ignorant. I didn't know how to make that transition. I didn't know how to take that and use it for this. Because first of all, no one taught me. Okay? And so then I began to read John. It says, you have no need of a teacher. You have the Holy Spirit. So if you don't have a teacher, Holy Spirit will teach you. And so I began to rely upon the Holy Spirit. He began to show me, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is how you do it. This is how you do it. This is how you do it. And little by little. But the problem was the paradigm that I'm thinking out of. The mindset was wrong. You cannot manifest the kingdom if you think wrongly, Christian. You can't. You have to be renewed. In your mind, right? The mind must be renewed. You must be transformed from cultural thinking to kingdom thinking. I'll give you a better one. This again, tell you how this stuff works with me. I'm teaching this for like two years. Cultural thinking and kingdom thinking. Cultural thinking and kingdom thinking. I don't know if you all ever heard me teach that. But you know, yeah, thank you. One of you. So I talk about that because it's important. And then the Lord starts talking to me about, you know, there's another cultural thinking, don't you? And I said, yeah, what's that? And he said, church cultural thinking. And I was like, what? And so the Lord began to show me how church culture is directly opposed to the kingdom culture. The way that we think, the way that we act, our religions, our traditions, our stupidity, the way we view him. Church creates a culture. So we have the world's culture and we have a church culture. And the world's culture and the church culture are not the kingdom culture. 
I'm not going to teach you. My heart is never to teach you the world's culture. You'll teach you about it. Never to teach you the church culture because I have no interest in that. But to teach you the kingdom culture because that's where everything is. But the church creates cultures that are directly opposed to what God wants to do. And here's one of them. Predestination. Okay. (laughs) If my wife was here, she'd be going, don't go there, Kevin. Don't go there. So we have, a, we have a group of churches, well-meaning churches. God, spirit, they're not spirit-filled, but they're very high-teaching churches. They're reformed in their theology. And most, most, say this with me, so I want to be clearly understood. Most reformed theology is good. There are, however, a couple of components that work against the kingdom. They believe in predestination. And so... I'm going to teach you what, what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about predestination. Their idea of predestination is, well, God predestined some to be saved and God predestined others to go to hell. And I'm like, and you did that research where? It doesn't say that. Again, ready? Say it with me. Dogma not supported by Scripture. Bible says whosoever will, right? God so loved that whosoever? The Bible doesn't say God so loved that only the predestined can come. Does it say that? This is a faithful saying and worthy of all repentance that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And then he goes on to say, it is not God's will that any should perish, but only the elect to be saved. Is that what he said? Did, no, seriously, did he say that? He didn't say that at all. It's God's will that none should perish, but that all, say it with me, all should come to salvation. So God in his foreknowledge has predetermined some to be saved and predetermined some to go to hell. So we don't need to go to Africa. Clearly look at Africa. You know, there are certain sections in Africa where, you know, the people are given over to the devil and they must be predestined to go to hell. So we don't need to go there. They're already predestined to go to hell. We don't need to witness to that drunk and alcoholic neighbor across the street. Clearly he's manifesting his predestination and he's going to hell. So let them go to hell. This is the thinking that they operate from. This is the teaching that they give into their churches. You think I'm lying? <laughs> well, it was God's will. It was predetermined that you guys get divorced. Really? Well, I thought it was predetermined that we get married. Well, it was predetermined that you get married, but now it's God's predetermination that you get divorced. Okay, well, isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Isn't this the God that never changes? So what, what's going on here? And so when you, take, when you take even this idea of predestination and you confront it with the scripture that God clearly states he doesn't want anyone to die, doesn't want anyone to go to hell, he wants all to come. He, doesn't, he died for the whole world that whosoever would want it can have it. There's no mention of predestination in there as they teach it at all. Yet, they propagate, and if I was here we would have a debate. I've had this debate. I've had this debate with a lot of them. And they don't, they don't agree with me. I'm, you know, okay, here's the word showing you. You guys come from the tradition of Luther, isn't it? So Lutheran tradition, I believe in Reformation. I believe in a lot of the things, a lot of teachings that, uh, that come from that are extremely solid. But this one, dude, you guys aren't even in the park. Because you teach righteousness correctly, because you teach justification correctly, because you teach human depravity correctly, doesn't mean that you're, you're correct on this. So if you got eight, you got ten doctrines, eight of them are stellar. Eight of them are five stars. Eight of them are irrefutably clear. But these two, predestination. Come on, man. Well, we're right on all this, so therefore we must be right. No, you're not. No one ever challenges it because it's a tradition. We've been this way. Everybody, 
you know, you got to understand, this is the Presbyterian tradition. This has gone back. This is the Presbyterians teach this. Lutheran churches teach this. It's true. Some Baptists teach it. Not all. Some. It's true. It's not in the Bible. How do we know it's dogma? Because it doesn't withstand Scripture. If it doesn't withstand Scripture, if Scripture makes it fall apart, it's not, it's not doctrine. I'm sorry. How, how do you deal with that verse? It's extremely clear. Bible says literal interpretation and the clarity of Scripture prevails over everything. So if the Scripture is literally speaking something and it is speaking it in the clearest terms, those two things prevail over everything else. It's the way it is. Nowhere does the Bible tell us that the gifts have died. Where do, where do you get that from? Well, when that which was uh, that which was complete, when that which is complete has come, that which was came in part will be done away with. You see. And so what that verse is saying, oh, they're going to interpret it now. So what that verse, that one verse, so what that verse is saying is that, that, that when the completed word was given, there was no need for the witness of the Spirit through signs, wonders, and gifts. It didn't need anymore. Now the witness comes exclusively through the word. You can completely decimate that viewpoint. And that's, again, the same group I'm talking about. They believe that's a cessationist doctrine. We're talking about discipleship here, people. And in order for you to be discipled correctly, you have to know opposing points of view. Okay? This isn't about, oh, we're against this, we're against this. No, these, these are opposing points of view. I'm pro-church. I'm for any church. I bless the church. God, people need Jesus. Every, every expression of faith needs Jesus. I mean, you know, there are people that are ministered to tremendously through various expressions of churches. Right? Not just this one. So I'm not against the church. But I am for the kingdom. That's what I'm trying to explain to you. I want the kingdom, right? We will give our souls no rest. You know this verse? Until what? Anybody know? Until we see the kingdom come upon the earth. We will cry out to you by day and by night. Until we see what? The kingdom come upon the earth. He didn't say until we see doctrine. Until our cessationist validation is, until our cessationist doctrine is validated. We will give our souls no rest. Until... We see all of the elect burning, the the unelected go to hell. We will give our souls no rest. They weren't calling for that. They were calling for the kingdom of God. And there's cultures within the church that are in opposition to the kingdom of God. Viewpoints, long-standing, that fall apart when they're confronted with scripture. Fall apart. I just had one guy, he said to me, well, biblical history is considered theology. Or he said, what did he say? Church history is considered doctrine. He said something, something stupid like that. I'm like, what? This guy's like a theologian. I mean, he's like... And so when, and when asked these questions, his response was, well, church history, that's considered theology. In what world? So, okay, so the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church that murdered and martyred the, the, the Protestants, that's considered theology? We should draw theology from that? We should build a teaching off of the fact that the, the Catholic Church murdered and killed oppressive anybody who opposed them? So church history is theology. I mean, it makes no sense. We have to be willing, say this with me, I must be willing to conform my ideals and my thinking to the scripture. Not tradition, not denomination. You, it's the Bible, people. That's, that's really what, what it is. It's, it's the scripture. 
Predestination looks like this. What, say this with me. Predestination means predetermined destiny. That's what it means. That's all it means. So God has foreknown and he has chosen those to, break, to come into a predetermined destiny. And what does the predetermined destiny look like? Do you know what the Bible actually tells us? Romans tells us we have a predetermined destiny to first part is to be conformed into the image of the son. So there, it doesn't say anything about being elect. doesn't say anything about being saved. No, predestination here again falls apart at the point, at the point of this verse. Our predestination is threefold. So you have a, say this with me, as a Christian, I have a three part destiny. Say this with me. Two parts are predetermined. The third part is up in the air. So the first thing is, is that we, God has predetermined that those who come to Christ are to be conformed into His image. It's the Greek word, simorphous. Say it with me, simorphous. Hey, don't you feel smart just by saying that? You feel smarter? Simorphous means same kind internally. So what does it look like? It looks like this. God has predetermined that all who come to Christ shall receive His Spirit. They shall receive the like kind, the simorphous, the conformation of their spirit into His. So in other words, he's saying, God, my, my predetermination, in other words, I'm deciding this is the way it's going to go. When someone comes to Christ, I'm going to impart my nature to them. That's what he's saying. It's exactly what he's saying. I will give them simorphous, and it means to share the same inner essence. All Jesus had to do was forgive you. He did not have to give you His Spirit. Do you understand that? The Spirit is a bonus plan. The gifts of the Spirit are the double bonus plan. Okay? But the Holy Spirit is a bonus plan. All that was required was faith in the accepted work of Christ. He didn't even have to renew you. He could have forgiven you and allowed you to stay this way until He came and got you. And then He could transform you in the world to come. But He didn't do that. All that was required was forgiveness. So He gave you simorphu. So what happens is God says, this is the way it's going to go. Nobody can stop it. He's predetermined. You come to Christ, boom, the power of the Spirit comes into you. Simorphu, you're born again. Born again is an experience. Does anybody know the big spirit? Have anybody here experienced being born again? Do you know what I'm talking about? Help me if you don't. Say, I don't know what you're talking about, Kevin. Born again, God comes into you. The life of God comes into you. Everything's new. You're what what in the world? What, What happened here? That's simorphu. That came to you as a result of putting faith in Christ. And God, and it happens to every single person who puts their faith in Jesus. You didn't do anything but put your faith in Him. And you confessed and you gave your heart and opened your heart. And God's predetermined plan was activated. Simorphu came into you. That's what happens. Now the life of the Spirit lives in you. That's why when you're in the Spirit, you're a different person. Come on, help me. You know what I'm talking about. We talk about this all the time. When you're in the Spirit, you're a different person. Now, as a Christian, you have the life of God living in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You don't have to do anything with that. You can completely... Most Christians forget about it. They get born again. You ever see people born again? They're brand new. Their eyes are glistening. Right? Wow. I just, I just love Jesus, man. Wow. Just everything's joy. Everything's just, everything's just a celebration. Then they get around the dinosaurs of the faith, right? All the crusty, cobwebby Christians. Well, that'll wear off in a little while, son. And you're going to settle in with the rest of us and just hunker down until Jesus comes. No, you don't have to accept that. Who told you that? Life of God is in you. You can activate the life of God in you anytime, anywhere, any place. It belongs to you. 
It's predetermined. It's given to you. It's not based on you. You have the Holy Spirit, whether you want it, whether, whether you do anything with him or not. In Christ, you've been given him the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not predicated upon your righteousness or your lack thereof. Right, Margie? She prayed for a guy. Got in a car accident. She told the story up here, right? Motorcycle accident. Guy flies off his motorcycle. He's all twisted up on the side of the road. And she says, she says we're all Latins. And she goes, so Latins like run out into the street anytime anything's going on. <laughs> she said, so all the Latins are running out into the street like, what's going on? What's going on? And they see this accident. And she said, there's a guy there and he's all twisted up, a motorcycle. And she said she felt the Spirit of God telling her, you just came from a healing class. You need to go and pray for him. And she said she was hesitant. And she said, but she remembered that, I, that what I told her, that the Spirit of God is not dependent upon your righteousness. He will manifest through you, whether, you're, whether you were, you know, wherever you were. He, he, his, the anointing is not dependent upon your character. The anointing does not testify of character. The anointing testifies of Jesus. That's why you see people without character manifesting anointing. And then you go, well, those miracles couldn't be true. Yeah, the miracles are true. The person's got really bad character. Okay. Right? The guy's got serious issues. But nonetheless, their manif- the, mir- the manifestation of the miracles is true. And so you prayed for this guy, went and laid hands on him, commanded him to get up, and the guy got up. Right? Eyes open. Somebody goes, we need to bring Todd White into this church. I go, Todd White who? Anybody know who Todd White is? Todd White who? We have Todd White sitting in a chair. I'm serious, man. Church of God, we got to get Todd White. Oh, Todd, pray for a miracle for me. Get taught in here to release the anointing. The anointing is here. It's right now. You don't need Todd White. It's right now. Nothing against Todd White. So don't like send me an email. I didn't like the way you talked about, but I'm not talking against Todd White. I bless the guy. Bless them all. We need more of it. My point is, is that you have it right now. It's been given to you. Simorfu belongs to you. Simorfu, okay, so we have Simorfu, the power of God coming into you, right? So here's what this looks like. This is how discipleship or this is how transformation happens. The life of Jesus comes in you. Now you can go, oh, that was cool, and then just go off on your married way and say, well, I assigned my insurance policy, I got bored again and everything, and then now I'm going to go off and live my carnal life for the rest of my days. You can do that, right? You're carnal. You have no inheritance, right? You don't, not, not much is going to be said about you in the kingdom. You're going to be like, who are you? Oh, yeah, we remember you. Yeah, you got saved that one time. Yeah, but okay, that's it. But we, really, we, we really don't see anything else here that you did. What, what, what did you do? The only thing that will be remembered about the believer's life is in, in the kingdom is what they did for Jesus. That's it. That's it. The, the Simorfu, when you partner with the Simorfu, say this. When I partner with the Simorfu, which is the life of Jesus in me by the Spirit... Right. When you partner with that and you begin to follow that, it creates metamorpho. That's right. Metamorpho is everything. So the simorpho, simorpho is where we get similar, where we get simultaneous, everything lining up. So God puts simorpho, he morphs us into an alignment with Jesus internally. We receive his like nature in us. When we partner with that and live from that, it creates metamorpho. Everything around you begins to change. The change doesn't come through spiritual disciplines. The change comes with the partnership with the Spirit on the internal. Simorfu creates metamorfu. Metamorfu means everything changes. Your environment, your circumstances, your entire life begins to transform because you now are partnering with the life of God in you. 
Any questions? <laughs> you have three destinies. Your first destiny is to get the, your first predetermined destiny. God's predetermined that you get the life of Jesus. Hallelujah. How good is that? I didn't have to do anything except put my God like Christ and he gives me his spirit. Wow. He's predetermined it. In other words, nobody can change it. It's the way he wants it. God's like, I predetermined that you get the spirit and you get new life in you. That's the way I want it. That's the way I'm saying it. I'm king. I rule. That's the way it goes. Boom. Predetermined. He's also predetermined that you inherit his world. Now, this is a big subject. So I'm going to try to put the cookies on the low shelf so that we can understand this. Just basically, you get his world, Christian. Fear not, little ones. It is your father's good treasure to give you what? Anybody know? The kingdom. Do not be afraid. Your father gives you the kingdom. We inherit his world. The Bible says we will rule angels. The Bible says we will rule nations. There will be nations in his kingdom. What does that look like? That's another teaching. Right? The Bible tells us that. You will rule and reign with him in the world to come. And he will give it to you. And the degree of your rulership, not your salvation. You come to Christ, you're in, you're in. You got, you got eternal life. You're going to be provided for. You're going to be in the joy of the Lord. But there are degrees of rulership in the kingdom. There are levels of crowns. Read the parable of the talents. They were rewarded on what they returned but to what they were given. They were given something. They provided a return and they were made rulers over ten cities. That's not a poem. Jesus is telling us a kingdom mystery. And those who have ears to hear are going to pick up on that and realize that there are kingdoms to be ruled in that life. And that my determination of an eternal rulership with Jesus, I'm not in any way, it's, and again, it's kingdom rulership, it's upside down. Kingdom rulership is servitude. Kingdom rulership is not domination. Kingdom rulership is elevation. That's kingdom. So in other words, if you're the leader, get beneath people and lift them up. That's the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is not over. The way of the Gentiles is to rule over them. That's what Jesus said. It is not to be so among you. So if you're ruling a kingdom for him, you're going to be in charge of many things. And it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be eternal. And it's going to be off the chain. But that is directly determined by what you do in this life. We were with Alejandro and I was I sharing with the Sunday night group. I just told him, I said, look, there will be a heralding moment in the kingdom. The Bible says he leads us in triumphal processions. The Bible says what is done in secret... Anybody know this one? Come on, help me. Will be proclaimed from the housetops, the rooftops. So whatever you've done for Jesus in this world, you're going to come in, you're going to be led in a procession. When the Lord is giving the rewards, you're going to come before the Bema. And as you proceed through the Bema, the angels will stand upon the rooftops and herald you. Here comes John Smith, breaker of chains. Man who understood his kingdom authority. Brought forth the kingdom, destroyed the darkness, pushed back the darkness, and elevated the kingdom of God. Here comes Susie Q, prayer warrior, an intercessor, led to the salvation of many. He's going to herald you. But many of them are going to go, here comes John Smith too. And it's going to be crickets. Nothing will be said. Here comes Susie Q too. Crickets. Nothing will be said. I almost get the angel going, uh, really? There's, there's like nothing? Nothing at all? No? Nothing? Yeah? Just her name in the book of life. That's all we got. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. That's it? Okay. <laughs> You'll be heralded. You'll be heralded. It will be heralded. Anything Jesus says, he means it. If he says it, it's going to happen. 
He's not just speaking to hear himself. Jesus does not waste words. When he tells you your works for him will be heralded in the kingdom to come, you can rest assured that you're going to stand there and you're going to go, wow, there's angels on the rooftops heralding people. Wow, the Bible's real. That actually happened. This is actually going on. And it's true. They say the only tears the believer will shed in the kingdom is those who of regret because they could have done more. They could have given more. You are say this, I am responsible for my mandate. That's your responsibility. What is your I don't know my mandate. Well, there's your first clue, Christian. Find out your mandate. I'm responsible for my mandate, and I'm responsible for this church's mandate. All should not seek to be teachers for such will seek to church your judgment. I will be accountable for what I've taught you. Or what I didn't teach you. Kevin, I never told you to teach church tradition. I told you to preach the kingdom. Pastors are going to account for that. Oh, well, I don't know about that. You are going to account. Have you not read? Have you not read? Go and find out what this means. Go and find out this what this means. I mean, he expects the teacher to know what he's talking about. Are you teaching my people and you don't have a clue? You're teaching them church tradition? You're reading from a book? I mean, is that what I told you to do? And I'm not only that, I'm responsible to push the church towards its mandate. I'm responsible to not just my own personal thing, but the church as a whole. And what do you want from this church? Who are we? What are we? Why are we? What do you want? And to push the church into the mandate. And if you're part of this church, you're supposed to partner with that mandate and move with the program. Well, I don't think we should put tile down in the bathrooms. I think that's a little wrong. I don't know why we're doing a preschool. Why would we be doing a preschool? I don't know. I don't think we should be doing a preschool. <laughs> you have a calling. So you have three you have three destinies. Your first you're predetermined. The first two God does for you. He gives you his spirit. Predetermined. He's going to give you the kingdom. Predetermined. You can't disqualify it. You can't. If you are born again, you cannot lose your salvation. I know it's hard to believe. I come from an Armenian church. You know what I'm talking about, Hank? Abe G. <laughs> you could lose your salvation. And so you're always under fear of losing your salvation. Oh my gosh! I saw that R-rated movie last night. And then I stood next to a couple of people smoking cigarettes and listening to Jay-Z. I think I lost my salvation last night. I gotta go to church on Sunday and repent. Anybody know what I'm talking about? All the time. And we create a culture of fear. And we create a culture where people go out and party on Saturday and Sunday night, Sunday, and and then they come before the church on Sunday and repent again and get born again. I got to go get born again. Really? Weren't you born again like two years ago? No, no, no. You don't understand. I, I yelled at my wife and I cussed somebody out and flipped them the finger on the highway. I got, I got to go get born again again. No, you need to repent, but you don't need to get born again. Big difference. It's true. When you're born of God, you are born of Him. The Bible says they went out from us that they would be known that they were not of us. In other words, what Paul is saying is they were intellectually part of this faith. They were just hanging out with believers, but internally they were never converted. Never converted. When we teach people that you can lose your salvation, you create a culture of fear. And the Bible says this, there is no fear in love. Does it not? Right. So is Jesus creating a culture of fear or is he creating a culture of love for his sons and daughters? Which one? Love. Look, I get it. I went to Bible school. I went to Assemblies of God Bible school, man. I get it. They preach lose your salvation like it's a mantra. They do it. 
Bible says it's not, it's not the legalism that compels me. It's the love of God for me that compels me. God loves me in spite of me. That's to be my motivation. I'm not to follow God because I might lose my salvation. Or here's another one. I'm not to follow God. Oh my gosh, i got to follow God because, you know, the rapture could happen at any moment, at any time, at any second. So I need to make sure I'm following Jesus, man. Jesus could come back, you know, and I could be having that, that, that beer in my hand and, you know, I don't know. That's your motivation. You follow Jesus under the guise of fear. That's your motivation. The Bible tells us, confronts us directly. It tells us that is not to be your motivation. The love of Christ is to be our motivation. We follow him because we know of his great love for us. We follow him not because of a fear culture, but because of a love culture. I follow him because I love him and I adore him. That's it. That's it. That's the culture. This is, again, what the Bible teaches. I'm not saying it's not what church teaches. I mean, I'm on the other side. I mean, charismatic churches typically teach you can lose your salvation. It's not true. Not true. It's just not. You can believe it if you want to. And you can keep repenting and coming to the altar to get born again. Repenting of a wrong is different than repenting and getting born again. When you get born again, you get a DNA, right? When you have a baby, right? Millie, that's your son. Does John look like you? Yes, he does. He has your DNA. The life that came from you is now sitting in front of you. John's never not going to be your son. You know, DNA proves he belongs to you. Doesn't matter if he acts like it, he's still your son, right? It's the same way with Christians. We're born of God. We have his nature. Doesn't matter if we act like it, we still belong to him. Okay. (laughs) Send me an email. I didn't believe what the pastor was saying about the thing I figured (laughs) here. (laughs) Here. <laughs> you have a calling. This is the one that gets all fuzzy. You guys want me to keep going or you want me to wrap up? All right. If you have to leave, I don't want to chain you to the chair. So, I mean, I know I've got five minutes, but before I'm officially at time, but I, I have a lot of information here. <laughs> I don't want to get into that. It'll take me too long. So you have a calling. So two of, your, two of the things that God has for you are determined and you can't change it. You have the spirit, that's predetermined. You have the kingdom that you inherit, predetermined. But you have a calling. To whom he, to whom he predestined, the Bible says, same verse, chapter 8, he also called. So you have a predestination of conformity, simorfu. You have a predestination of inheritance of the kingdom. That's another verse, but it's very clear. And then you have a predestination, or you have a determined destiny towards a, a, a determined path towards a destiny. What it looks like from God's eyes is God made you. He knows how you're made. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your innate abilities. He knows your makeup, and He's got a plan for you. That's all through Scripture. You're created for good works, what God has foreordained. He's already put a plan out in front of you saying, this is what Kevin was made to do. This is what Lily was made to do. This is what Marjorie was made to do. This is what Ingrid was made to do. We're all made to do something. We're part of a body. There's a universal connection, but we also have an, 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 an individual connection. It's calling. This one determined by us. We get to partner with that. So I'll just read you this real quick. Jeremiah says, before, Jeremiah 1, God's telling him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. There's foreordained. God foreknew him. God said, I knew who you were, Jeremiah. I knew exactly who you were. I knew when you were going to be born. I knew you. And he says, and before you were born, I set you apart. And I called you to be a prophet to the nations. Okay? So here we have God knowing Jeremiah. And God setting apart a destiny for Jeremiah to be a prophet. But Jeremiah could have easily turned away from that. 
easily. In fact, he did several times. <laughs> but God kept bringing him right back. Right? He kept, he, he quit. Jeremiah quit several times. I don't know if you read. God's men would never quit. Really? <laughs> Jeremiah quit, I think, at least four times. I know three for sure. He's like, I'm not doing this anymore. People don't like me. I teach them. They throw stuff at me. You know. I don't like their faces. They threw him in prison. They drop him down in a hole. They leave him in the stocks. They beat the guy. They kidnap him. How'd you like to be that? All because he's serving Jesus. And then the people don't like him on top of that. Jeremiah's like, I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> Jesus says this to the Pharisees, Matthew 22, 14. This is important. Many are called, but few are chosen. The word chosen is ekletos. It means to choose. What this word is actually saying in the context that Jesus is speaking, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about a man who was told to do something and had direct instruction of what he was told to do, a calling to do something. The man decided not to do it, and Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, many are called, but few choose. That's what he says. In other words, many are called, but few choose that calling. All the time. A lot of you guys, you already know some semblance of a calling on your life, but you've not chosen it. Why would they say, Jesus looks at them and goes, many are called, few are chosen. That sounds so poetic. But if he looks at the Pharisees and says, many are called, in other words, you, but few, is that few actually choose the nature of their calling. And they pick up stones and go, kill him. If Jesus just gave a poem, many are called, few are chosen. That's not going to invoke you to pick up a rock, but if it's directly directed at you and it's saying to you, you have a calling and you have rejected it and you refuse it. Well, theirs wasn't just, they weren't Christians. They were not Christians. Their first calling was repentance. They had failed in that. Their second calling was the manifestation of the kingdom and the Messiah to the world. They failed in that too. And Jesus was letting them know, I know. You know your calling, but you refuse. They knew exactly. Jesus said, if I do not come, they would be innocent. Jesus came to invoke a response from the Pharisees. He made them openly reject him. He made them. They either had to declare him or they had to reject him. Those who do not gather with me are scattered from me. And he made them. Many priests believe. Many Pharisees believe. But there was a sect or a group of them that didn't. Say this. My calling is micro, macro, and meta. Now, don't you feel smart? That's all through Greek. Greek, it's dimensions. So micro is small. We know that. Macro is bigger. And meta is overall. So you have a calling that's a micro calling. You have a calling that's a macro calling. And you have a calling that's a meta calling. What's your micro calling? From, from the standpoint of the kingdom, your sons and daughters. That's a micro calling. That is the most basic calling on every believer. We're all called to be sons and daughters and to walk that out. You're called to be a functioning part of a local church. That's a truth. You're called to grow and develop and transform and become obedient to basic truths. Micro calling. Read your Bible. Pray. Commit and connect to church. Financially give. Live on mission. Micro calling, Christian. Elementary basic principles of the church. Simple set of instructions. Learn to follow the simple set of instructions. If you can't follow the simple set of instructions, just like Saul, you'll be disqualified from kingship. Saul could not follow a simple set of instructions. He didn't lose. What he lost was his kingdom. He lost his authority or his kingship, his ability to manifest what God had given him. Macro callings. Some of you have a macro calling. That's your immediate circle. You have a calling as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother. Okay, An employee or an employer. That's a calling. Your work is to be unto the Lord. So you have a calling in your workplace. This is just your basic parts of life. You have a calling to be a good neighbor. You have a calling in these, to work as unto the Lord. Show up on time, do your job. 
add value to the company, whether they deserve it or not. Be humble. Your meta, your meta calling is the integration of your life for the greater purposes of the kingdom. So what does that look like? Your business owner. Your calling in the macro is to fund the gospel. You are someone who... Uh, uh, you, prayer is prayer and intercession is a macro calling. Yeah, I have that. Prayer and intercession is a macro calling. So your calling is my. I'm, I like to pray. Well, your calling in the macro is to pray and intercede into the kingdom. Your calling is to live a missional lifestyle. Some of you are called to fivefold ministry: apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Some of you that may be. Some of you may be called, and this is meta. You may work a job over here, but you may do this over here. You may be doing volunteers, or you may create an organization that builds structures that creates jobs, justice, restoration, and salvation. It's the integration of your life into the kingdom. That's your meta calling. Most Christians can't even get to the macro because they can't do the micro. God's got a monster vision for your life. He's got a monster purpose for your life that will resonate and create tremendous harmony and the world will know you live. But if you can't follow a simple set of instructions, you're not getting there. You're not getting there. Let no man think they will receive anything from God for they're double-minded. The Lord says this, you say that. Guess who loses? You. You. You have to come on page whether you agree with it or not. You have to commit yourself to the things God asks of you, whether you believe it or not. Why do you think he intentionally tells you to discipline yourself? Because he wants to see if you can do it. He wants to see. Will you read your Bible? Will you pray? Oh, of course, Lord. Yes, absolutely. Yes, all the time. Okay. Will you commit and connect to a church? Well, I don't know about that. I'm part of the church universal. Disqualified. Will you financially give? Well, when I feel like it or if I have the money... Uh, or I, give, I typically give on Christmas and Easter. Uh, that is if I show up during those times. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. I don't feel called to give. And I don't feel called. You're called to the full tithe, Christian. Uh, I don't have to. No, you don't have to. You get to. There's no judgment on you if you don't do it. It's up to you. you go, I can't give 10%. I always tell them, can you give one? Can you give 1% consistently? Make 100 bucks a week instead of giving $10, which is your tithe. Can you give a dollar? Can you give Jesus one penny on one dollar? For his goodness, can you start there? And can you tell him, Lord, I will, exam- I will allow you to examine my life and look at the expenses in my life that are contrary to you, and I will commit myself to the tithe? I, I don't know how radical you are. I don't know how determined you are, but at some point, you're going to have to make up your mind whether this is living or this is not. You have to make up your mind. Are you playing as a Christian or are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you or are you not? Are you a son and daughter or are you not? Because if you are, then act like one. If you are, then live like one. I told myself I'd eat ramen noodles and live in my car if I had to, but I'm giving the tithe. I've never stopped. I've never stopped. Never stopped. I give more. I want to give more. I give more in any way I can. But financially, some pastors, oh, we shouldn't give. You know, we're giving the ministry. No, pastors should tithe. If pastor doesn't tithe, that's a problem. What makes a pastor think he's exempt from the tithe? If the people aren't exempt, neither are you. Well, I am the Lord's offering. My time is the Lord's offering. Who told you that? No, seriously, who told you that? It's nonsense. I know I'm talking a lot today, but anyway. I'm not going to get where I wanted to go. I'm out of time. So anyway, I'll pick this up next week. Um, But I do want to say this. What impacts your calling? First of all, that first part. Disobedience. Not willing to walk in the most basics. Okay, say this. Even if I don't walk, come on, in the basics, or do everything that I'm supposed to do, 
Jesus still loves me. You understand that? Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. He loves you. He's for you. He's reaching towards you. But he is trying to activate things in your life that are directly related to obedience. And if you will not obey, then the gate will not open. That's just the way it is. He's not withholding everything. Everything is a partnership again, guys. Give and it shall be given back to you. Isn't that what it says? Press down, shaking together. Running over, will God cause men to pour unto you? Everything you give will be given back to you. Cast your bread upon the water, it will return on every wave. Bring all the tithes into the Athor house and prove me, prove me, I dare you, that I will not open the windows of heaven. Heaven has windows. God's like, I'm going to open up the windows of heaven and I'm going to start chucking it to you. Honor the Lord with the first fruits, and then your vats will overflow with new wine and your barns will burst forth. My barns are going to burst with plenty. Not if you don't honor the Lord with the first fruits. You see, the blessing is predicated on an act of obedience. doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He loves you. You can give your way out of debt, provided you're willing to partner with what he shows you. What impacts your calling not knowing it? Second thing, undealt circumstances of your past. This is what keeps people back. Their fear. A lot of people have internal struggles. They know their calling, but they can't get themselves there. They're paralyzed because of abuse, abandonment, neglect, wounds, trauma, resentment, unforgiveness, internal issues that prevent them from stepping forward. Poor choices, which is undeveloped character. That's what keeps you from destiny. God says, I'm going to do this, but you keep choosing against it. (laughs) Not having a Holy Spirit-led strategic plan. God gives you a plan. He tells you, hey, I'm going to do this. You know? And our natural inclination is to try to figure out how to do it. If God tells you to do something, you need to ask him, how do you want me to do it? I presume nothing. I don't presume anything. I'm always asking, Lord, how do you want me to do it? I'll tell the Lord, okay, Lord, this is what I'm thinking, but I'm open to suggestions. You know? Or I have no clue what I'm doing on this. I need you to tell me. Again, where are we going? We're going back to reliance on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to point you every time back to the Holy Spirit. Every time it's going to go back to the Holy Spirit. It's not human intellect, people. God's going to show you something. He's going to give you a vision for your life. He's going to say to you, this is... We're we're working with India right now. I I wish I would have put the picture up there. I've got 24 pastors in India. I'm doing a a training uh, with pastors in India. We're going to plant churches. It's a process, a long time. Don't have enough time to talk about it. But Alex sends me a picture of all the pastors standing outside waving. They made a banner <laughs> with mine and Sherry's faces on it. And, you know, elevate Tenali and all this stuff. And the orphan kids are like this. They're going like this, you know, and everything. And so, but God tells me to do this. I know I'm supposed to do this, but I don't know how I'm supposed to do it. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How do you want me to do this? And as soon as I'm willing to commit to something that I'm not willing, not, I know he's telling me, I see the open door. I step through it. It lines up. I step through it. And then I start looking to him. Is he like pouring out wisdom or what? I mean, you sit there all the time and like, God, it's like, I feel like, I feel like when I ask him about this, like, like, it's like, it's almost like heaven itself opens up. It's like, it's like, I just feel like, like the ideation of everything that when I ask the Lord, what do you want to do? How do you want to do it? It's like wisdom comes from, and that just doesn't apply to India. That applies to a lot of the things that we start to do. God says, I want you to do this. I'm like, I have no clue. Okay. Sounds great. Why? I'll do it because you told me to, but if you could clue me in on why, God will start telling you why when he can trust you. Why comes through relationship. Why comes through communion with him. A lot of you all want to know why. Like, what are you trying to tell me here? What does this mean, Lord? Not why is it happening, but why are you saying to, for us to do this? Sometimes, in most of you, you're never going to hear why because you've not learned to obey him. He's going to tell you because I told you to. 
well, I'm going to do it. He knows I'm going to do it. He knows I'm jumping out of the plane if he tells me I'm jumping. He knows. It's like, Geronimo. If I know God's told me to do it, I'll put on a gasoline suit and walk through hell itself. If I know he told me. When he tells me, I lock. It's done. 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 There's no deviation. It's done. It doesn't mean I know what I'm doing. (laughs) But it means I'm committed to the process. I'm committed to what he told me to do. And I've done that over years, and I've demonstrated that to him over the years. And I've developed a communion with him. So now it's a communal relationship. It's not just one of an obedient relationship. You've got to begin with an obedient relationship. If you don't have an obedient relationship, you're like, well, God doesn't commune with me and talk to him because you don't obey him. Basic obedience, Christian. Basic obedience when you don't want to. It's ugly. It hurts. It's painful. There's no glory in it. Obedience in the dark means there's no, there's no happiness in it. You're just doing it. You do it because he says to do it. That's it. He'll tell you to do some things where there doesn't seem to be any positive result to that at all. Why did you tell me to do that? Because I want you to learn obedience. I want you to begin to do what I tell you to when I tell you to. I can't bring you forward, Kevin, if I say go right and you're going to go, oh, I don't know if I want to go right. When you start moving into the kingdom, you move into an entirely different dimension of risk. I know, they're tapping the watch. i got to go. I'm done. The watch is being tapped. I'm finished. So where do I finish? Let me finish with this. Put a bell on him, Kevin. Put a bell on Kevin. Ding, he's done. Say this with me. He knows me. And he loves me. Say this. I have a threefold destiny. I have a threefold calling. I need to learn what my calling is. And this will be next week. I have a legal right. And I am justified. Say this. My todays determine my tomorrows. Say this. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy to confront yourself. It's not easy to confront your weakness. It's not easy to come to terms that you're complicit in your own destruction. It's not easy to come to terms with the fact that you have been choosing wrongly and you have been the one that has been causing a lot of the things that have been going on. Your disobedience and your willful attitude has been allowing the... Just like Cain, it's the spirit of Cain. Sin claws at the door and desires you, but you can master it if you do what is right. Some of you are so devoured by sin, you're so devoured by the devil because you refuse to do what is right. It's not easy to clean out your junk. It's not easy to see that you're, you're, you're part of the problem. It's not easy to change. It's not easy to discover your glory. And it's not easy to, bring, to birth God's glory. It's not easy to discover your calling. It's not easy to birth God's glory. I want you to say this. It's not easy. It's worth it. It's worth it. Any moms in the room? Any? Come on. Be proud. Come on, moms. You got a mom? Get over here. Was birthing that child easy? Was it worth it? That's the same thing with the glory of God. God gives you something to bring into the world. And it's not easy. It's painful. It's hard. It's difficult. (laughs) But in the end, it's worth it. We'll talk about that next week. Jesus loves you. We have fire starters in an hour. What? I'm already already 25 after. I'm totally over my limit. I'm over my limit. And discover, elevate. That's right. I want you to receive from the Lord this morning. I hope you got something out of this.
Open up your hearts. Let me bless you. We have a prayer team available if you need prayer at all. They will pray for you. But I want you to just receive a blessing. Blessed in your coming in and blessed in your going out. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. May He give you peace. And may you forever live within His favor. In Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.